G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Let's go off this, eh? You're playing tricks on me. Come on, man. I'm trying to preach here. Um, uh, my name's Bernard. I'm the minister here, in case we've not met before. And it's great to have you along if it's your first time uh, here at church or indeed at any church or just it's been a while. And uh, it's good to have you back. Um, from time to time, I think it's valuable for us to spend some time in our preaching tackling the big questions in the terms that the people around us put them. Um, I, I guess every single week here at Good News, we're talking about the big questions um, of life, aren't we? Because we're sitting under the word of God to us, the word of the God of heaven to human beings here on earth concerning things like life and death and heaven and hell and good and evil and God and you and me and Jesus and life in the real world. That's true. Every single week, we're tackling the big questions, but I think it's good to devote some time occasionally to come at that from the particular point of view of those around us. The, the terms, the phrases, the convictions, uh, the conversations, um, the, po- the posture that really questions, I suppose, or doubts or prods at some of our beliefs together. So today we're tackling this big question. I wonder, have you heard it? Uh, Have you come up against it recently? Why isn't God happy with sincere people of other faiths? Why isn't God happy with sincere people of other faiths? We're tackling this question today as we last week finished our 1 Peter series and next week we take up a series on Jonah. We're between a couple of preaching series. Why isn't God happy with sincere people of other faiths? We'll look at this one uh, together for this week. Now, where does that question come from? Well, we come across little snippets in our Bibles, don't we? So Jesus says things like, say in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. What does he say next? No one comes to the Father except through me. Um, The apostles preached in Acts chapter 4, for example, salvation is found in no one, uh, no one other than Jesus, uh, for there is no other name, they said, under heaven given to humankind by which we must be saved. No other name. Um, So I think the exclusive, if I can use that word, teaching is there, isn't it, folks? Throughout the pages of Scripture, throughout the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament, right across the Bibles, that there's one way to God. Um, We don't need to multiply examples, I trust, of that. Uh, But then, see, then we look at our dear uh, non-church-going, non-Christian friend, um, or we watch that drama, you know, or that movie, uh, with perhaps a sincere, devout committed follower of some other faith and they're nice people you know gosh they're nicer than us we might think to ourselves why isn't God happy with sincere people of other faiths Um, some of these folks they have a strong moral compass Um, some and perhaps this is indeed you here today as a guest in our church have a strong sense of what's right a desire to be the best person that you can possibly be in your life, a passion to live a life of meaning that actually matters, that makes a difference for the good of the world. The kind of life that might actually make someone proud, perhaps yourself, perhaps God, 
uh, perhaps your parents or whomever, the sort of perhaps the mentors, whoever it is that you look up to in your life. And see, and friends, I think the end result is, doesn't God come off seeming more than a little miserly and unpleasable? If he will not be satisfied with sincere and diligent uh, people, those who pursue life, a life of doing good, sometimes at extraordinary personal cost, we've got to say, and then do you see he becomes a God that we want less and less to do with and our hearts just turn away from him just a little, if that's the kind of God that he turns out to be. Have I followed the logic correctly? Have you come up against that question recently? Have I followed it through? Pursuing a life of sincere goodness is hard enough, let alone under the miserly watch of a God who will not be satisfied, something like that. And now maybe we don't go quite that far with resentment or um, wherever that leads exactly, but do we experience something of a disillusionment or a confusion? Uh, Perhaps just the beginnings of drifting a little bit away from our God. Why isn't God happy with sincere people of other faiths? Have I framed the question clearly enough for today? Explored it, at least just framed the question. Is it fair to say it's a question that stumps us a little bit when it comes up? Perhaps stumps us in our own hearts, not just when it comes up in conversation. Uh, It stumps, perhaps, some who would otherwise, we imagine, be really quite open to hearing about the Jesus who has won our hearts. Let's pray as we turn to Romans 10 in search of answers together on this very question. Let's pray together. Our Father God in heaven, we do ask for your help this morning, please. Uh, We know you in the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and we have found you to be a great God to us in him. But from time to time, we face a question that seems to cast a shadow or at least a question across some aspect of your character and we do struggle we admit God to answer it either for our own friends or even to our own satisfaction father would you please guide us toward wisdom together in answering this particular question from your word today we ask that the gospel of the Lord Jesus would shine all the more dazzling dazzlingly and glowingly in our hearts this morning and out from our hearts to the people around us. So help us and guide us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me give you two options. And this is kind of the, uh, the short version of my answer to our question from Romans chapter 10. Two options, which would you prefer? Would you prefer a God who will, at a stretch, if he must stoop, content himself to spare those few most sincere, those most diligent, those noble and lovely ones, would you prefer a God who would content himself to spare a few most sincere? Or would you prefer a God who will give himself to save the many, any and all, not just the sincere, but the sinners and the slackers and the slimes and the so-and-sos? Would you prefer a God who would content himself with the few most sincere or a God who would crucify himself to save uh, the many least and least lovable? See, the trouble with the question, if I may be so bold, 
uh, is that it starts with a fairly definite but unspoken idea of who God ought to love to begin with. It starts with an idea of who is worthy of God's love. But the God that we actually meet says, meet in the pages of Scripture says, what, what are you doing talking about worthiness for? Don't even start there. Don't even begin there. I want to talk about loving those who are unworthy, who know that they've blown it, which, by the way, includes an awful lot of rather sincere people. Do you want God to content himself with just a sincere few or the God who will crucify himself to save a sinful world? That's more the way that the scriptures frame it, I think. Could we turn to Romans 10 together? I wanted to give you the short version, you know, up front, so you kind of knew where we were going. And uh, if you remember nothing else, you'll at least remember that bit. Could we start with Romans 10? Now, I've chosen Romans 10. We could have gone to all sorts of passages, not because it says everything that could be said, that could come up in as you uh, wrestle with this question. I don't think it does that. Uh, but I think it does this much well. Show me a person who is zealous, who is driven, who is sincere, who is passionate, um, and indeed passionate not just for a good life, a religious life. Uh, show me a person who sincerely strives to live according to God's religion, as in the God of the Bible's religion, or at least God's commands, the Old Testament law, and yet not follow Jesus. This is the person that we meet in Romans chapter 10. It's like the perfect example of the sincere person because they're literally sincere for the things of God, but just not for Jesus, do you see? Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote the, book, the letter to the Romans, uh, the book of Romans in our Bibles. The Apostle Paul used to live like this. He knows this from the inside. He's something of an authority on it, really. He can definitely speak to it. And he, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, human author of God's Word to us this morning, Paul puts his finger on three fundamental problems with expecting God to save the sincere. At least three. Well, we're just going to draw out these. Three problems, fundamental problems with expecting God to save the sincere. Three ways that that kind of gospel, if you can call it a gospel, would actually be less would actually be sadder, would actually be smaller than the really great, enormous, wonderful, lovely, good news which we actually have in the Lord Jesus. So three flaws to the sincere but Jesusless path to God. And the first one, even if you're following God's moral rules for life or his Old Testament rules to the people of Israel... Uh, first floor is this, that it amounts to a misplaced zeal. Let's have a look together. Romans chapter 10, verse 1, where he writes, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they didn't know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. I'll just uh, For those of you who are fairly familiar with your Bibles, I, I do want you to understand, please understand, Paul isn't talking about all God's people prior to Jesus, okay? 
As, as we look at this paragraph, Paul isn't referring to all of God's people down through the ages prior to Jesus appearing. Um, he's not casting any doubt, he doesn't intend to do this, no question marks over the salvation of some of the characters that might come to mind, Moses or David or Deborah or Esther or um, Elijah or uh, we could go on with the names. Uh, we, we've kind of come part way through a rather dense, longer discussion here uh, as we enter in Romans chapter 10. The question is this, now that Jesus has come along for all to see, isn't it good enough? Aren't I trying hard enough? Haven't I done enough, me, to be righteous yet? Quite apart from Jesus, do you see? Now, that whole idea of being righteous, that is an odd word, I suppose. Um, how, how might we come at that? Haven't I done enough to, for God to be happy with me? Do you see the connection to the question? Haven't I done enough for God to be happy with me, for me to be righteous? Have I not been zealous enough, not done enough, not sincere enough? Doesn't he want me, after all? That's kind of the thing that's on view. Or to take a slightly more technical definition, I suppose, of righteousness, am I not justified in God's eyes? Does he still hold something against me, some grievance? Will he not declare me right in his eyes, in his estimation, be content with my life and love me as I am? Now, in modern terms, in our terms, where do we actually meet people like that? Um, sorry, the, the, the tone of my voice was a bit off there. I don't mean people like that in a, in a scornful way. Where do we meet people uh, of that sort of, you know, sincerity? And I think it's, it's this person, isn't it? The person who once walked as a Christian, um, who now says that they'll still try to live by the same standards, still try to live the same way, still try to hold themselves, you know, to, to biblical morals, you know, love your neighbour and all of the rest but just not the Jesus side of things. They don't want that side of things, just not the church side of things. Can you think of people like that who still want to hold themselves to a high moral standard and yet they really don't want Jesus or church or any of those um, what you might call trappings of religion? Thank you very much. Now, folks, how does Paul reply in just those first four verses? I think he says they may be zealous, but their zeal is tragically misplaced, doesn't he? They may be sincere, but they are sincerely wrong. Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. And friends, don't overlook that verse. Uh, please notice that. Paul is not vindictive. He's not being harsh. He's not being holier than thou. His heart's desire, he's laying it open for us to see. He wants to see these people come to Jesus and be saved by God, for God indeed to be happy with them. Uh, verse 2, these folks who, they are zealous for God, but their zeal isn't based on knowledge. And in context, Paul's not talking about people who, um, who don't know about Jesus. He just means, yes, but they don't want a bar of him. They want to do life, attain righteousness, get God's happiness apart from him. Verse 3, since they didn't know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they didn't submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So let me get this straight. These people want to do the right thing. They want to live their sincere lives. They want to do their best. And they want God to be 
happy with it. All the while, they know that Jesus has come and has died for them, has given his life for them, but they just won't acknowledge it. Oh, they're zealous, but they don't want God to be happy with them just because he loves them and wants to save them. No, they want God to be happy with them because they've done enough, tried hard enough, given it their best. And that is bananas, Paul is saying. Can you see that? Verse 4 is actually saying, Christ has followed the law better than any of you have, better than I have. He wants to give you God's righteousness. That's the way to get God to be happy with you. God's happy with you as a gift. And you want to tell God to shove it? That is bizarre. Why would you do that, Paul is saying? He's giving it to you. You really want to insist on getting it for yourself? Don't. Verse 3. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Uh, Now, I I readily um, accept, I appreciate that not every sincere, um, you know, upright, moral, good person that we're talking about Uh, as we consider the question at the beginning, not everyone knows. Not everyone does know about Jesus. Some haven't heard. Um, Many have, and probably many who we know, uh, who have drifted away from church, well, they certainly have, haven't they? But there are some who haven't in the world. There are many who haven't. I guess from this, we can say at least this much. If they believe that their only hope to get to God if they believe that their only hope to get to God is through their sincerity and their zeal and their striving and how well they can do in life, then, and I say this gently, they grossly underestimate the compassion and love and tenderness and open-heartedness of the God that we meet in Jesus, don't they? He longs that there, what does it say? That there may be a righteousness for everyone who believes, not just for the few who manage to good their way to God. Secondly, so it's not just a misplaced zeal, longing for God to be happy with our sincere striving. Secondly, it is a misguided pursuit. It's actually a wild goose chase. To begin with, pick it up from verse 5 with me, would you please? Moses, from verse 5. Moses was the, uh, the prophet in the Old Testament uh, through whom God delivered the moral law, well, the law to the people of Israel uh, in, the, in the desert, in the wilderness, uh, when they came out of Egypt, so about 1500 BC. So he could he say a thing or two about the law. He knew it, he gave it. Moses, verse 5, writes this about the righteousness that is by the law, the person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith, so this is Paul speaking again now, the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That's to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, I must admit, I'm not exactly sure what the ins and outs of what all of that is saying, but verse 5 is pretty clear. If you want God to be happy with you by obeying his law, 
which, by the way, is probably the best shot that you've got if you're not going to follow Jesus, isn't it? You might as well follow God's law. If you want God to be happy with you by obeying his law, verse 5, then you've actually got to do it. You've got to follow it, all of it, the whole lot. The person who does these things will live by them. But verse 6, well, if you'd only take hold of Jesus, let God be happy with you through him because of him, uh, not because of things that you've done, then you don't have to do anything. Or, Or to mix metaphors, as Paul does here, you don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to search out the heavens. You don't have to dive down into the deep blue sea. It's not hide and seek with God when you come to him in Jesus. Verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, you know, like it's right there, it's in your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Excuse me. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Now, friends, brothers and sisters here this morning, I know Paul can be a bit wordy and convoluted, um, which might be the pot calling the kettle black a little bit, but anyway. um, But answer me this, if you look at the gospel from Paul's point of view for a moment, who is the miserly one? Who is the stickler? Who is the fusspot? Who? Is it, is it God or is it the moral, zealous, law-abiding, proper person? Who, which is it who comes across unreasonably insistent that things have to be their way? It's extraordinary, isn't it, I think, in, in what Paul's done in this text. God is the one saying, I don't care how you've lived. I know, but I don't care. Anyone who believes in him, that last line, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Christ has become my righteousness for you. That's what it's saying. Given to you, not won by you, not searched out by you, not found by you, discovered at the bottom of the ocean or way up in the sky, not found by you, even you who follow my laws, to say nothing of those who have followed other moral codes or held themselves up to other standards, made up ones, cobbled together ones, or whatever it is, I'll accept anyone, God is saying. Verse 12, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Uh, Gentile means non-Jew, non-Israelite, people from other nations, other religious systems. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you see, I think Paul does this beautiful thing here. He manages to make God's generosity shine, doesn't he? Church, you see, Christians, we aren't, in Paul's estimation here, we aren't just one bunch of sincere saints and that religion just down the road, uh, they are a slightly subtly different bunch of sincere saints. And the uh, that mob of atheists down the road is another mob of sincere saints, if you'll excuse the language. 
No, the Christians, we Christians, we, are, we may be a mess of stuff-ups and skeletons in the closet and fallen short and shaky shipwrecks, but do you know what? God loves us and he's happy with us. We're not just another bunch of sincere people striving to get God's happiness with us. No, he already loves us and the doors are wide open. Come on in, anyone, everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Which leads to our final, our third pitfall. If you would prefer a God who contents himself with the sincere few rather than the God who would give himself for the sinful world, then it is actually you, can I say this gently, who have a miserly view of God and a miserly Christ. How different it is for those of us delighted to find the Christ who came for us, even for us, even for you, even for me. Verse 14, how then can they call on the one they haven't believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they haven't heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Can you feel the momentum building in that paragraph? Can you feel the momentum? But Paul wants to tell the whole world. It's just the outworking of verse 1 there, isn't it, brothers and sisters? My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. And he's talking about the beauty of feet who would carry that gospel to the world, to the people around us, to the people who haven't heard of Jesus and don't know God could be happy with them, not because of their striving, but just because of Christ. Now, in Israel's case, just to go back to them for a moment, had no one preached to them? No. God had preached to them. He provided prophets all down the centuries to them. Did they not get it? Like, was God not clear? Was he too confusing? No. They understood all right. Was God not good enough? Was he not kind enough? Was he too miserly? Did he not give them long enough? Verse 21, but concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Friends, why isn't God happy with sincere people of other faiths? I think the question, it makes God sound miserly, it makes him sound um, reluctant, uh, maybe even needy, like he, he needs um, certain things from human beings. The, the, he makes it sound like the kind of God, would you really want to have much to do with him anyway, even if you could? But the God I want sincere people to meet is this one. The God who would, what did it say? Hold out his hands all day long for you as he has down through history for mankind. The Christ who came and died that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. The Spirit who says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Jew, Gentile, whatever. You, if you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. What a God we have in the Gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring that news but there's a cost. 
Do you realise that as we move towards a conclusion? You face a choice. You're standing before God. You have to decide, don't you? Will it depend on your own sincerity? And you may be a very deeply sincere person striving in your life to really make a difference in the world, to live a life that, whether or not you believe in God, you, you want to be proud of, or you want your parents, whoever it is. You may be deeply sincere, but you, you face a choice. There's a cost. Will you bring your sincerity to God, seeking his happiness with you? Or will you, paradoxically, bring your sin before him, trusting in Christ that he is already happy with you, he loves you, he's delighted in you through Christ? Um, Lee Strobel was an investigative journalist. I mean, he's, he still is alive, but he's just retired now. He, well, he's working on other projects. Lee Strobel. And he was an investigative journalist who set out, and I'm sure many of you know the story, he set out to debunk Christianity. And so he brought all of the tools and training and experience and his mind and his method in investigative journalism to analyse Christianity, to put it under the spotlight in the hope of proving it hollow and empty a fraud. And he discovered this. I'll read this to you and then let's pray together. He said, Every other faith system I studied during my investigation was based on the do plan. Every other faith system I studied during my investigation was based on the do plan. In other words, it was necessary for people to do something. Uh, for example, use a Tibetan prayer wheel, pay alms, go on pilgrimages, undergo reincarnations, work off karma from past misdeeds, reform their character. To try to somehow earn their way back to God. Despite their best efforts, lots of sincere people just wouldn't make it. Christianity, says Strobel, Christianity is unique. It's based on the done plan. Jesus has done for us on the cross what we cannot do for ourselves. He has paid the death penalty that we deserve for our rebellion and wrongdoing so we can become reconciled with God. I didn't have to struggle and strive to do the impossible and make myself worthy. Over and over, the Bible says that Jesus offers forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift that cannot be earned. It's called grace, amazing grace, unmerited favour. It's available to anyone who receives it in a sincere prayer of repentance, even someone like me, says Strobel. And brothers and sisters this morning, even someone like you? Even someone like you. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, oh, that we would remember the wonders of your gracious, happy embrace of us in the gospel of Jesus each and every day. Surely a fresh and vibrant sense of your love would drive back that sense of distance, perhaps even that sense of resentment that creeps in as we begin to imagine you as a miserly, stickler, hostile, what rubbish those things are. God, remind our hearts as we go out this week of the warm and deep love of Jesus towards us, inexhaustible and dependable, 
May we admire our Saviour. May we find our delight in him again. And Father, when our friends or our spouses, perhaps, our family members, our colleagues, when they so misunderstand or oppose Jesus, may we have the patience and the peace and, we ask, even the perfect words, not to outsmart them, but just to let Jesus glow in our testimony to his goodness towards us and towards them. May we have beautiful feet. Finally, God, would you please extend your reach with the gospel through us for salvation? That is, please, God, would you reach those sincere but, we gently say, misguided souls around us. And may they find in Jesus not a miserly master, but a spectacular saviour. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.